Welcome to Excavate, uncovering our place in God's story. I'm Heather Strongmore. I'm Jamie Dawn. And I'm Whitney Trotter. We are so excited and honored to be welcoming Whitney Trotter to the podcast this week. In our previous episode, Jamie and I talked about a biblical theology of food and the body. And this week, we'll be digging deeper into how disordered eating can impact us and the ways that generational trauma connects to dynamics around food. We'll discuss the story of the Israelites coming out of captivity in Egypt and how that shaped their relationship with food and how God helped them rewire those patterns during their time in the wilderness. We're really looking forward to this conversation. Let's dig in. So in case you're not familiar with Whitney's work, I hope you guys already are. You should all be following her on Instagram. She's an awesome follow at WhitneyTrotter.rd. Whitney is a registered dietitian. She's a registered nurse. She's an anti-racism educator and human trafficking activist here in Memphis, Tennessee. And in the past 10 years, she has been in the field. She has developed a special passion for addressing nutrition and eating disorders in communities of color along with the intersection that exists between human trafficking and eating disorders. Whitney founded her own private practice called Bluff City Health with the goal of incorporating her love for health, wellness, and yoga into her client-centered approach towards nutritional health. She has many achievements, such as being distinguished as one of Memphis's top 30 professionals under 30 and as an outstanding alumni at the University of Memphis. Whitney, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. And thank you for that lovely introduction. It's so good. I'm going to copy paste it for my future speaker bias. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, we are thrilled. So Whitney and I are friends here in Memphis. We live in the same community. And, but Whitney has opened my eyes so much to just different needs in the eating disorder treatment community. And before I was following you on Instagram, I would actually have said that I was fairly knowledgeable about eating disorders. I have been in higher education for 17 years. <laughs> so um, I have worked with a lot of students, have undergone several trainings. I have a master's in counseling. So I would have said I was uh, above average in my knowledge of eating disorders. But really following you on Instagram, Whitney, just opened my eyes so much to the huge deficits that still exist in the field around the need for professionals of color and the research and more research for clients of color. So I'd love for you to just talk more about where the field is currently and the needs that you're seeing. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. It's so interesting because I think we all have kind of been indoctrinated into like what typical eating disorders are. Even my early career, similar to like what you had, you had shared, like I thought I had kind of like above, you know, um, above average knowledge. And it wasn't until I really started working um, with clients that had disordered eating, eating disorders, I realized I was like, wow, there actually really is a lot we don't know. And, you know, something similar that I've shared too is just like a need for the field and community to grow. I, I often share the statistic that less than um, 3% of registered dietitians in the U.S. are African-American. And then of that, <clears throat> I mean, it's I can think of like maybe 15 total throughout the whole U.S. that actually specialize in eating disorders. Um, and of that, I think there's only maybe four or five of us that have the knowledge, experience, and expertise to like mentor and train other RDs. Um, so it is, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. My jaw, y'all couldn't see it, but my jaw was literally on the floor when Whitney was sharing that. Cause I've heard you share that statistic, but when you actually pull out that raw data of how many people that is, that is just shockingly low. Yes. Yes. It's very low. And I think it's because of how we always envisioned eating disorders and, you know, who gets access to care, who gets access to a diagnosis, things like that. So. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. Uh, well, I'm excited to hear you continue to unpack that a little bit. Um, can you tell us a little bit before we get into some of the passages about um, the BIPOC eating disorder week that you were co-founder of? Yeah. Okay. So I, Heather knows this. I had a just a very traumatic year last year. And so I 
was just thinking of like, what is the ultimate distraction? Like I just, I really needed something like through the grief, you know, like what can I do? And I turned to my husband, Jeff, I was like, I'm going to play in a conference. <laughs> and he was like, okay. <laughs> my husband in real life, that's like very on par. Like he's just like, okay, let's do it. You know? Um, and so I just called up like all of my BIPOC friends in the field. And I was like, I don't think I can pay you, but can we do this? And um, everybody was just so enthusiastic and was like, absolutely, let's do this. And thankfully the ticket sales were so good. We were able to pay people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so I uh, called a really close colleague of mine. I was like, asked her, I said, can you help me co-plan this conference? This is what I'm dreaming. This is what I'm thinking. And it had never been done. Um, and she was like, absolutely, let's do this. So we did, uh, July is BIPOC mental health awareness month. So that's why we chose July. Um, and then we did the first ever BIPOC eating disorder conference and it was open to anyone and everyone, just all the speakers were people of color. Um, and we had a religious trauma panel, which I was very proud of that, um, And then we just, I was like, you know what, let's take it a step further and let's create a BIPOC eating disorder awareness week. Um, And so that's what we did with that too. So that's so amazing. And you were recently recognized for that work, correct? Yeah, which is wild, which is wild. Yeah, I had no expectations or anything. And we got a call that uh, Project Hill is an amazing organization. They're a nonprofit um, their headquarters are in New York City, but they really oh, wow. exist to increase like awareness, but particularly treatment access. So they actually take a majority of their funds and pay for people that cannot afford uh, eating disorder treatment. Wow. Okay. That's exciting. Yeah. And is there, are there places that people can still access the content from your conference? If they registered, yes. Um, if they did not register, no. But we are going to have a conference again next year. So I'm excited. July 2023. Okay, wonderful. We'll look forward to that. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to continue to um, hear the ways that your work um, can help us as we navigate this conversation. So last week, um, Heather and I talked a little bit about um just what it is to navigate our relationship with food and have scripture as a foundation for that. And we talked a lot about how God created food. God loves abundance and good things created us to eat and find joy and nourishment in food. And that we really want to affirm that our bodies are very good. Food is a good gift from God and we're meant to experience freedom and goodness in our relationship with food. And um, so we talked a lot about that as our foundation of this is what God's intention really is. And yet, as we've talked about um, just in almost every episode, that we don't always experience things as they ought to be, that the fall impacts our relationship with our bodies, uh, with our creation. And so um, that's just because the Lord created these as good gifts, uh, we often have experienced the fall. And so we experience things such as disordered eating and um, a broken relationship with food and our bodies. And so uh, that's going to be what we're digging into this week. So if you're new to our podcast, if you came here uh, through Whitney, then we just want to share our general format is that we work through a passage and we discuss it Um, And then we unpack, like, what does this have to say for us today? And um, are there things that have been added on to this story that we need to uncover um, from the past? And so um, that's kind of where we'll be heading. And then um, we will continue to hear uh, from Whitney as we do that. So um, we're going to start with the story of Exodus that we... um, as Heather and I were talking about different passages, I started thinking about like, we were talking a lot about scarcity and the ways that that impacts our relationship with food. And I just started thinking about how the story of God bringing his people into the promised land has so much to do with their relationship with so many things that were a part of Egypt, but food is a part of how God is teaching them about his character and nature. So we're going to read a passage. This part is picking up um, 
kind of in the middle of the liberation story. So they have been uh, released from captivity in Egypt. Um, they are no longer slaves and uh, they are in the wilderness now. And so part of their experience, again, was leaving the culture of Egypt behind where they had been formed by their slavery, by their uh, labor that was designed to be how their identity was made. Um, and then also um, just the patterns of a corrupt regime impacting the way that they experience life. And um, so a big part of what their experience in the wilderness was, was their experience of God reforming them and saying that they actually have a better leader now, um, that Pharaoh is no longer um, the one who gets to make decisions for them. So um, we're going to read in Exodus 16, and then we'll unpack this together. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So um, there's so, so much there. Um, and I think <laughs> the Israelites are coming out of a major season of trauma that they have experienced. And that that really did intertwine with their relationship with food. And so, um, Whitney, can you just talk a little bit about that, that relationship between what can happen between trauma and food for us? Yeah, it's so interesting. And I, I want to be very sensitive in like the, um, the delivery, um, because so much of kind of, yeah, there's, there's so much, um, anti-Semitism that is going mm -hmm. on. And mm -hmm. when we first started learning about the effects of trauma um, and starvation, a lot of it actually in the eating disorder world was studied with Jewish people in the Holocaust, like the Minnesota starvation um, experiment in which a lot of us actually learned about refeeding and the body was on Holocaust, Holocaust survivors. So I, I want to be very sensitive in the way in which I deliver this. Um, and a lot of my early, um, yeah, early experience with higher level of care. I, I can remember in Memphis specifically, um, the I was in charge of, I was a director of a residential PHP and IOP eating disorder facility. Every single client but two were Jewish. And um, it was during Passover and we actually had a Seder. And that was the first time, you know, I've been a Christian for, for um, several years, definitely more so in my 20s, like really walking with the Lord. But in my Christian experience, I know it had ever taught me the significance of food um, in Christian culture or primarily really in Jewish culture, right? Um, and how each meal represents something. And so when I think about that experience and I think about the Israelites and I think about um, this connection of trauma and scarcity, it's generational. And we think about epigenetics, right? Um, 
And so I, and that's one of the things I always assess for when I'm working with somebody with eating disorders is I want to know the familial genetic, you know, who else suffered with trauma, who else had a disordered relationship, um, because we know there's a genetic component and we know it's generational. And what's also really interesting, I always think about this passage is what we know now is that, um, when you are, so like my maternal grandmother technically carried me in her womb, right? So when you are, when the woman is pregnant and, you know, it's determined that she's having a baby, a, a, a female baby, you're born with all the eggs that you're going to have. And so when I think about the Israelites and I think about the 40 years and I think about God bringing them out of captivity, I'm like, wow. And we see this, right? We see this in this passage, but we see this further down in scripture too, um, just how much of a difference that makes with trauma in the body. So I always think about that. I don't know if that answers your question specifically. Um, I also think about, and I cannot remember the author's name, but it's a book called Eating in the Light of the Moon. And it talks about how in life, you know, we're in like the, you know, very symbolic of the ocean, right? And we are um, just, we're drowning. We're drowning. There's trauma, there's life. And all of a sudden this uh, piece of wood comes to us and we grab, we gravitate to the piece of wood and it's like a lifeline, a lifeline, right? So it saves us in this very tumultuous sea of our life. But then we eventually like make our way to the outer banks, but instead of just dropping um, this big piece of wood, this log that has carried us, we carry the log onto the sand and on throughout life. And so that's so much of what an eating disorder is like for people with trauma. It came in at a time that was so tumultuous and just so, um, you know, near death for so many people. And then when they are kind of on the banks of life or they're able to stand up and walk, they cannot let the eating disorder go. Um, and so that's really how I treat, um, eating disorders kind of from like a trauma perspective. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I do think so related to this story because the Israelites have such a hard time letting go of Egypt. Yes. They, they still are, it's ingrained in them and it's totally understandable. I mean, it's, you know, we should be very compassionate to the reasons why it was ingrained in them. They were there for literally centuries and generations. And it's, it's essentially almost like a detox time in the wilderness where I think God is trying to help them see the, the before and after in a way of like, this is where you came from and you need some time to kind of get that out of your system. And they keep going back to it. They keep going back to, oh, well in Egypt, we had this or that in Egypt, we had this or that. Mm -hmm. And they kind of glamorize it in their minds of they're like, we had all the food we wanted for free. And they're leaving out the part of in exchange for your free labor Yes. And so they are just sort of like justifying it or yeah, glamorizing it in a sense in their memories. Yeah. yeah. What does that bring to mind for you, Whitney? Yeah. I, I, again, um, I just want to be so careful how, how I share these stories. Cause it's like, I don't ever want to be like that Christian person is like, Oh, I was in Israel, you know? <laughs> right. Sure. <laughs> you know, but I, you know, we, Jeff and I went to Israel 2019 and um, there was a group of people that were baptized in the Jordan river. And like, I, I mean, I just, I was one of those people too, that I would read this story and I'd be like, why would you complain? Like, you know, like what is there to complain about? Right. Like, God is literally taking you from slavery and bondage. And like, now you're in this place, but y'all I'm telling you when you're in the Jordan river and you, cause it's dipped low, right? When you like, I will never forget this imagery. When you come, when you're right on the banks of the Jordan river and you look up, you can't see anything but desert. I mean, literally for my, even in 2019, right? Like it is nothing. So I can't imagine back then. And so it, you really do, it becomes this place of like, there's no way provisions are going to be able to be provided in the desert. I mean, you you just like your, your logical mind goes there. Right. And then when you see it, you're like, I'm not going to survive because we all know we need food and water to survive. Right. And so it's very um, symbolic in, in, in what we see kind of in today's of that feast or famine, we feast because we don't, we know the famine, our bodies hold on to the fam- the famine. We know what that's like, but we feast because we don't know when provisions are going to be made again. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so well said. Um, with that, I'm thinking about how 
I, I love how you were talking about the literal desert playing into their despair. And so I'm just thinking about how often, um, like you said, like we can look at this story about the Israelites and say, just stop, like, stop grumbling. Like, what do you, God is rescuing you. Um, and I think if we're honest, sometimes we see disordered eating as only like a behavioral pattern, um, merely as that. And, um, and so we can basically say the same thing to a person with disordered eating of like, just stop. And so, um, I'm wondering if you can help, like if there's people who maybe don't have a relationship or don't know that they have a relationship with someone who has disordered eating, um, can you help us imagine like what that, um, kind of despair really is for them of like that the hopelessness that would come into that picture of that kind of famine moment that you might be living out of or, or what that looks like so that we can begin to cultivate some, some empathy and understanding. Absolutely. That's such a good question. And we know that eating disorders don't exist in silos. Like they don't exist alone. So there's usually a co-occurring mental illness, like anxiety, OCD, depression, a mood disorder. And so usually what is happening is somebody can, you know, we are, we're normalizing other mental illnesses. Like people are openly talking about anxiety. We're kind of openly talking about depression, particularly in like the church world where we're talking even more about like postpartum depression and things like that. So we're putting verbiage to it. I, what happens in eating disorders is I think we get so hyper-focused on the other co-occurring because at we all know somebody that's been on a diet and we don't see that as the diet being the gateway into the land of disordered eating. Right. Like uh, when I was sharing with Heather a couple of weeks ago, our generation is the generation left over from like our moms were on Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers and Atkins. Right. And so we've just grown up with so many of our moms, our grandmas and our aunts dieting and living on weight loss shakes that we don't even recognize it as problematic. Um, but then for that person, it may start off something as simple as like a diet or a fad, but then what it does is it's gateway, right? So it leads into disordered eating and that leads into this like obsession with food. You know, I can't hang out with you because I have to go to the gym today, or, you know, we can go out to eat, but we can only go to a place, you know, that like chefies that will serve salads. I can't do pizza night with you. And so it really impacts how we exist in community and like relationally with people. And so I would say that's the first sign if, if you're noticing that somebody is having a hard time eating in public, eating around you, um, obsessively worrying about what they're eating, always on a diet, that really is kind of a red flag um, to, you know, lean into a little bit more and ask what's going on. Yeah, thanks. Um. Heather, were you going to add to that? Yeah, I was going to, Whitney, you've shared some just really, I think, kind of shocking statistics about the rates of depression and suicidality in the eating disorder community. Could you share some about that of, yeah, just sort of the isolation and despair that can result when people are in those places? Yeah. So eating disorders are the second deadliest mental illness um, right after the opioid epidemic. And it's estimated, the last statistic I, I read, every 52 minutes, somebody dies of an eating disorder. And the, you know, kind of one of the higher causes is suicidal, uh, suicidality. Um, and so, you know, it's just something that we don't talk a lot about um, in our Southern evangelical culture because it's scary. And we, and, and quite frankly, a lot of us aren't trained to really know when to escalate help, when to you know, what, what do we do if somebody comes up to us? I mean, I've had this happen at church. Somebody will come up to Jeff and just be, I'm, I'm suicidal. And he's like, I, you know, I'm, I work here, I'm on staff, you know, I'm a pastor, but like, I'm not a therapist. What do I do? But then you can't get people into help. And so people are going, especially in communities of color, right? We go to the church for so many things. It's a natural response to want to go. Um, and so we know those statistics are really alarming. They Again, in eating disorders, it really works in that isolation. It wants to isolate you from people, from groups, from community, from things like that. And it just manifests. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's so helpful. <clears throat> I think that was such a good point around the way that we can 
we are trained to look to the church to be a helpful place. And I think that's so healthy in some ways. And then in other ways, just um, can make us even more isolated when someone doesn't know how to meet those needs. Um, Absolutely. Well, and I think it's hard too, right? Because I, I always, I often joke and laugh about this, but you know, so many churches, the MLM thing is like rampant, right? How many, how many people that are involved in the church or like pastor's wives or, you know, are like selling these MLM things. So why would you go to somebody if you're struggling with food and body? You know, I think about Optavia, it has overtaken the church world by storm. I mean, truly. And then it's, one of the things I also get so frustrated is not only does it promote disordered eating, you also do these like just horrific side by side pictures of people mm. um, and a, a funny side story. So the lady that there's an HBO documentary called The Way Down, and it was done, I think, Br- Brentwood Franklin area. And it really goes to where how the church has been so complicit in diet culture. Um, but the lady that is at the center of the document was a nutrition professor at University of Memphis. She was the clinical coordinator. And so it just goes to speak and and to really show how much diet culture is just ingrained in so many areas of our lives. So if you are going to the church for help, it's it's how can you be vulnerable and authentic when so many people around you are also engaging in disordered eating and normalizing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jamie and I talked about that pretty extensively in our last episode about as we're trying to have a more healthy biblical theological view of food and eating, we spent practically half the episode talking about how the church has just absorbed cultural narratives and just sort of baptized it with verses and like in the Bible and just essentially rebranded it as Christian, but it is still diet culture and just sort of image driven culture. That's very unhealthy and is very worldly. And we just aren't really examining that at all or having a critical eye of, is this actually what God created us for? Is this how God views our bodies and food? Or is this just what we're kind of blindly absorbing from the culture around us? Yeah. Yeah. We got to take a trip to Israel, y'all. We got to take a trip and we got, we have to, (laughs) uh, I went to the Memphis Jewish community center here when I started my private practice, because literally everyone I had coming, I left higher level care, opened up my own practice. Everybody I had was Jewish and Rabbi Jonah. I went to Rabbi Jonah and I was like, please help me (laughs) because (laughs) I was used to reading the old Testament from a Christian perspective. And it wasn't until I really sat down with Rabbi Jonah and understood like the fasting and, and how he was like, no, you abstain from fasting. If you have a mental illness light bulbs, right? And and walked me through all of the things I had read in Deuteronomy, Exodus, Joshua, and like put and why this food was symbolic and why God had them do certain things that it, it, it just, it changed me as a Christian one, but two, it just changed how I practiced, um, you know, and, and similar, I, I have worked with a couple of clients who are Muslim as well. And, and um, really understanding just the impact of diet culture across different religions, you know? Oh, so many thoughts. First of all, I had no idea um, the lineage of like anti-Semitism in our research around eating disorders. And um, so I'm so grateful for you bringing that into the light. Um, And then also, we had been debating on if we wanted to talk about fasting. And so I feel like this is our answer. Um, so I want to, I want to ask you a little bit more about that. I come from, um, a church experience where there's fasting is a significant part of it. And I would say, um, my experience with, um, a lot of black churches is you start the year in uh fast. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I I'm wondering about how that even impacts communities of color. But I think even in this passage, so we talked in our last episode about how what we never see is fasting in order to prepare for a feast, like how we would talk about it in diet culture, uh, that that's, although fasting is a part of um, the church calendar, it's never like you better fast so that you can then feast that that's never a part of like the language or heart of God. Um, and, and so I think 
what we see in the Israelites in this uh, story is that God is retraining them. And so fasting, it's actually the opposite that like where they would want to hoard or they would want to um, believe that there won't be enough, um, that God is really teaching them about God's provision for them in every single day. Um, but I think so often, like, because the church hasn't untangled themselves from diet culture, fasting kind of becomes a part of that. Like, well, we'll start the new year and it'll be consecration, but it'll also be a nice little way to get rid of that holiday weight. Um, or, or something like that. That's just so honestly evil. Um, but can you, can you talk a little bit about like, what does, um, yeah, like say some more about fasting and how has that really impacted um, people who maybe, I mean, you talked about a genetic component, like how can we listen to scripture and also be sensitive to the ways that that could invite someone into really unhealthy patterns? Absolutely. Yo, I am kicking myself because I was reading this phenomenal book um, it's written by a Christian woman, but it's called reading the Bible with rabbi Jesus. And it talks, I, I'm just kicking myself cause I don't have it, but it talks about, um, oh, okay. I found it. I found it. I'm so sorry. Okay. So, um, I'm going to read this cause it, it, yes, you're absolutely right. Like I, I come from more of like a very traditional black church, right? Like we, like new year's Eve, like you are at the church revival, like the Daniel fast is so big in like Southern black culture and churches, but we have used it in such a way to create and influence the distorted relationship of food and body. And so when I was reading this, it, I'll, I'll just read a little um, excerpt and it says Daniel's diet plan actually made him fat. You might miss this if you read the NIV, which says Daniel and his friends were better nourished than the young men who ate the royal fare. Daniel 1 verse 15. The Hebrew word that is used here is actually, and I might pronounce it wrong, Bari, B-A-R-I, which means fat. The more literal ESV explains that Daniel and his friends had become fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. They hadn't lost weight, but rather gained it on Daniel's diet plan. They had expected a diet of only vegetables to leave them thin and weak, but God honored their faithfulness uh, to Jewish dietary law and avoidance of meat sacrifice to idols. So they actually put, so they, so they put on weight instead. And so when I was reading that, and it, it also talks about kind of the song of Solomon and the woman's body, it was so eye-opening to me because again, um, and I, I've shared this a lot, we we have made kind of thinness our idol and like weight loss a God to us. And we use scripture to justify weight loss fasting, right? And so I always advise people you know, there are other things that you can do from fasting besides food, you know, especially if you are struggling with your relationship, if there's any amount of secondary gain that you think that you're going to do this for weight loss, we see this a lot in Lent, I'm going to give up chocolate. And the person's like, I hope I lose a couple of pounds or, or I'm going to give up sweets, you know, and it becomes less about the sacrifice and obedience for God and the reverence than, uh, and it becomes, it becomes less about that and more about the weight loss. So that's how I counsel a lot of my my clients about fasting. Um, and then, you know, again, in, in Jewish culture, sitting with Rabbi Jonah, um, really understanding how there are times when you cannot fast if you have a certain illness um, and really giving people permission and speaking to that. Um, you know, Jeff and I have talked about, you know, fasting from social media, fasting from the phone, fasting from TV. What are other, what are other strongholds besides food, um, that one can fast from? So. That's so good. That's just so practical and insightful. Yeah. Um, I think maybe as we move into our next passage, um, can you, you started to talk a little bit about epigenetics uh, being a part of our generational experience. But as you said, like we see this in the wilderness that there's generations. And so maybe the people who weren't the ones uh, who actually were in slavery 
are now still wrestling with some of these patterns. And so can you just help us see like how generational patterns might impact our relationship with food? Yeah. So I first learned about this with, um, there's a wonderful book and workbook called post post-traumatic slave syndrome. And it talks about the, you know, the, um, black, the black experience with slavery and those of us who are descendants of the enslaved in the U S and how the epigenetics, um, really has influenced just so many different, um, attributes of our lives. Um, and so when you think about that, you can take that into a biblical perspective as well. Um, when you think about the Israelites and you think about, you know, what I think about the young women, right? Because even Mary, you know, a lot of um, scholars, and I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts too, um, was about 12 to 14 when she was pregnant, right? So when we think about Israelites, we can kind of put them um, in that kind of age range too. So when we think about the next generation, there's so much food that is needed during that developmental time period because people are still growing, right? Adolescents are still growing. So I think about epigenetics. I think about the Israelites coming out of captivity. And I think about God providing each day and how much nourishment was actually needed because we we probably think of them all like what 30 40s 50s and and we don't really know like the bible is 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 not it doesn't give us the age range of everybody right and so i think about wow like god had to take into every single consideration of age developmental trajectory journey and y'all, I'm telling you, being, I, I know I keep saying this, but being in Israel, it really puts in perspective of how long they had to walk from Egypt. I mean, you know, and to think about that journey and how much was needed and to think about, again, the traumatic influences of genetics and really turning epigenetics, really turning on some of those things. Um, so there, there's so much research still out there and we're still uh, discovering, but we know, you know, eating disorders, we treat biopsychosocial. There's a biological component, genetic. Um, there is a social component. And I think about the social component with the environment and, and the Israelites, the trauma, um, you know, just things like that. And it's, it's so, it's moving, you know, it, it really is moving when you think about the provisions of God that. Uh, he provided when they had so much going on for lack of better words, you know? Right. Yeah. I think so much about or just preparing for this episode, put this whole just time period of for the Israelite history in a whole new context, which I'm so thankful for. Cause I usually only think about it on the spiritual level of what is God teaching them spiritually to depend on him, to learn, to trust him, to find him trustworthy in their daily bread and obviously jesus then puts it in the lord's prayer give us this day our daily bread it's part mm -hmm. of just the history of god's people is depending on him and finding god to be trustworthy um yeah. but there's also i do think such a beautiful food and habit practice and intuitive practice that god is trying to teach them through the manna where first of all they can't hoard it because it won't keep overnight so i think yeah. that's so interesting that god is like this isn't a practice of hoarding. We're not operating out of scarcity. It's yeah. going to come back. Yeah. And also that God is, I think, helping them connect with their bodies intuitively where he's saying, gather as much as you need for a day. Mm -hmm. And that's up to them to gather yeah. how much they want and need. And I think that's a really interesting invitation that God's giving them of rather than having this sort of scarcity transactional relationship with food of like, I have to work to get it. And I hope it comes back, but I don't know. And they have, it, you know, in enslavement in, in Egypt, it's like, you have to earn it. You have to earn food yeah. and it's in reward for your labor. Yeah. And here it's just a gift from God, that God is just the one who's providing it. It's not transactional. And they're the ones who choose how much they want and need. And Absolutely. I think that's so interesting. I'm curious what that brings to mind for you, Whitney. You know, it's, I'm so glad that we're talking about this because it's very symbolic of how we parent now, because think about how many parents treat food as a reward. If you get straight A's, we'll go get ice cream, you know, only on special occasions will you get pizza. And so it's very reward based. And what it does is it creates like the secrecy around food and like a food morale, you know, mm -hmm. where God is saying each day you're going to have an abundance that you have to depend on me. Um, 
And you have to have so much faith because again, you're literally looking and you're like, where is this food coming from? And you're like, this is not the land of milk and honey. Like this is not the land, you know? And so I think it just goes to, to show again, like there are seasons in life that God creates that, um, you know, there is a sheer and, and utter dependence on him. And I think a lot of communities still have that with food. Now there's so much food scarcity that go, that goes on. Um, when I think about my clients who identify as immigrants or first generation, just their experience coming into America, um, and having to figure out food and, and what that means and where that daily, that daily food and daily provision is going to come from. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely, um, I hope that people will, as they incorporate better habits to nourish themselves and their loved ones, really think about how God desires for us to move away from the scarcity and move into abundance and, and, you know, relying on him for our daily needs. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask a little further about that because Jamie and I have both experienced in different ways, like, like scarcity or hiding around food in our formative years. And I think, especially in media depictions of overeating, I think society often associates overeating with greed but we never talk about the ways it can be motivated by fear and mm -hmm. scarcity. And so I'd love for you to share more of how can experiences of scarcity impact our perception of food and potential eating disorders. Absolutely. And so when there's a, so the body does not recognize, um, it can't really differentiate between intentional and unintentional restriction and starvation. Right. So, but the body just recognizes that as a trauma response. It is being undernourished. It is being underfed. It wants uh, consistency. And so our body remembers that. And so, particularly, I think it's always interesting adolescents, um, specifically young girls with adolescents, we don't really let them go through the awkward phase of puberty without body shaming them. And so, what happens is usually that's when the, the parent primarily the mom will take them to the doctor and start the dieting, you know, start cutting back on carbohydrates, pasta, pizza, starting doing more like vegetables only. And so we really kind of see this scarcity um, experience emerge around like the, the puberty phase. And so there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt. It leads to hiding of food. It leads to secrecy because uh, there's an expectation that your body should look a certain way and it's not. You know, and so I think we always want to be kind of cognizant for those that have adolescents, for those that are involved in adolescent lives of really like, how are we speaking about our body? How are we speaking about food going into our body? Um, and if there is any hiding of food or hoarding of food, bringing that out in a way that's not shameful. Wow, that's so good. I'm Heather and I were just talking about our own experiences of that. And, um, I think for me, like, I think it's interesting how trauma and food, like trauma is stored in the body. And mm -hmm. so the ways in which our experience of like scarcity of food, trauma is already stored in the body. And so the fact that like food is such a part of that, I just think it's so interesting to kind of think about that thread of like, wow, when we experience that scarcity and whether real, like out of need, or like you said, out of, um, imposed scarcity. Um, I think it's so interesting to think about almost like the double layer of trauma that we are, are giving our, our bodies. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Any other thoughts or comments on this passage before we would move on? Good. Okay. So I do, I am just experiencing or just appreciating the wisdom of God about the wilderness period. And first of all, the people somewhat, they kind of chose in the wilderness period. I think God intended to give them like two years in the wilderness and then like just as a transition time and they ended up staying longer by their own choice. Um, but there is, I think so much wisdom in God giving them that opportunity to change their habits and to learn just new ways of being and ways of 
functioning and ways of relating to one another before they enter the promised land. Because I think God's desire is that then when they do experience abundance and bounty, that they have a healthier way to navigate that and interact with that. So I'm going to read a short passage from Deuteronomy that I think is so lovely. This is right before they have entered the promised land, but God is giving them final instructions of how to think about the promised land and how to live once they're there. So I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 8, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 10. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. First of all, I just think that's such a beautiful passage. So I'm curious, Whitney and or Jamie, what just what are your initial feelings and responses hearing those verses? Maybe start with Whitney. Oh, sure. I think it's it it's just so beautiful. It's beautiful and moving. And to me, it just it speaks to every season of life how God has created a provision for us. Mm, that's so good. I'm thinking about, um, we often talk about it as land flowing with milk and honey, because that's like the language that's most often used. But I love how clear this is that there's such an abundance, like overflowing abundance in all these different spaces, that there's pomegranates, that there's olive oil, that there's wheat and barley, um, where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. That it's not just like a piece of that, but that in every single aspect of it, there's such an abundance. And I think there's something really beautiful about God reminding them of that. And, um, and the invitation, I think like we know as people in like olive oil does not flow, right? Like olives are in abundance. Um, and you have the capacity to make olive oil. And so I think it's interesting that God is saying like, when you partner with me, there will be an abundance here. Um, and that he uses language like olive oil when it's not like that is flowing in abundance, but that there's olives everywhere that they might be able to then do something with. Um, and I just think that's kind of an interesting invitation from the Lord in his uh, description of the abundance. Yeah. You know, what just came to me as you were, as you were sharing that is too of like, how much food they needed to, to cultivate the energy to expel the olive oil. Right. Cause you're right. Like they had to make the oil from the olives, but it's like, that it was just so interesting. It goes back to what y'all were sharing about this intuitive piece of, you know, we weren't measuring calories back then. Right. Like, nor should we now, but like they had to listen to their body to be able to eat, to know how much energy they needed because they were working the fields. They were pressing the gra- their grapes and the wine and the, you know, the olives and things like that. And it's like, they had to sustain each day, but each day was also um, very, you know, kind of flexibility with eating as well, you know? So we're going to eat on what we need based on the day, but also thinking about the energy requirements to cultivate the provisions that God has given us. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. And I think about what would have happened if say they went straight from Egypt and like in a month they were in this land of abundance and bounty. And Mm -hmm. if they did that before they weren't ready, um, I feel like that would have been a very different experience for them that they might've then just wanted to hoard everything and wanted to kind of clamp down on it and had still perhaps a fear-based or like transactional reward relationship with the new land and with everything that grew there. And I do think it's so intentional on God's part that he's like, you need some time to heal emotionally so that then when you have this abundance, you can receive it with gratitude. You can have freedom in it. You're not feeling fear and scarcity in the land. You're feeling security and you're feeling wholeness. Yeah. I think about that too, with the community aspect of it, like that they got to learn that when their neighbor gathers manna in the morning, that it doesn't actually 
take away from what they are able to gather. And so I think about things like the oil, like that's not really an individual endeavor, but it's really a community experience. And so I just think about that in terms of like our own social experiences of food and like what it is to um, maybe relearn how to experience social settings and a healthy experience of food and the way that God made that a community experience in the wilderness um, so that they could have that experience in the promised land. Absolutely. Well, you think about how many parents shame their kids for, you know, eating with their fingers and how that is so cultural um, and a part of daily life for so many cultures, right? They don't have utensils or they, um, you know, may choose not to use uh, utensils, but it goes to speak, you know, they were eating with their hands. So God, not only with the provision, but really wanted to let them have all of the sensory, right? The tactile, the smell, the taste, Um, and it wasn't just this, like, you know, everything was done in community. Like there was a purpose behind everything and how we treat meals. Now, so many of us are so disengaged, right? Like we're only really sitting, you know, when you, if you identify as a Christian, right. We think about, um, you know, for those that celebrate Thanksgiving, but then you think about really Christmas and Easter, right. How, those are like the big kind of food holidays for Christian culture, but you're like, when else are we sitting around the table, um, unfiltered and really just thanking God for the provision and where you have people that are making the community meal. You know, I think a lot about African-American history and culture with food where, you know, I grew up eating chitlins and how it was definitely like a community experience and event multiple people were involved in the process. And you think about culturally, there's so many different types of food that culturally that we have lost because again, diet culture uh, labels food as good or bad, right? And so many people are missing the experience. You, you hear a lot like my generation of, I wish I had saved my grandmother's recipes. I wish I had written down my aunt's recipes uh, because now some of those traditions with food and culture are, are becoming lost. Mm, that's so good. Um, you were talking a little bit about celebrational uh, food, and this is one I, I really want to hear from you because I loved how you started to bring up um, food as a reward. So how do we balance that idea of like food as celebration, but not food as like a reward system um, and like have it be something where we are celebrating like the bounty of the Lord and that God wants us to enjoy food as like a pleasurable, uh, sensory experience. Mm -hmm. And also like not have this be a a transactional thing. Yeah. That's such a good question. So I'll, I'll take Halloween for an example. (laughs) You know, there's an abundance of candy. And so again, we don't like moralize food in our house. Like we really are. Our daughter's name is MJ. We have really been trying to teach like food is food, but food, different food items show up differently in your body. And so with the candy, what I, what I told her is like, okay, if you eat an abundance of candy, you're going to feel a little shaky. You're going to have extra wiggles and it might be hard to concentrate if you only eat candy. And so you know, teaching her to recognize some of those things so she can start listening to her body. Um, and then I'm a big person on pairing. And so I, t- I taught her, you know, peanut butter has protein in it. So to, it'll help you kind of feel satisfied. And so getting her to eat, you know, M&Ms with peanuts or, you know, a Reese's peanut butter cup, and then we pair it, you know, she gets to choose if she wants to pair it with, you know, apple, strawberries, or bananas. So letting her know that she has autonomy with the food choices. There's, there's boundaries in what she can choose from, right? We have selected these boundaries. She gets to choose in which the boundaries that we have provided her and then teaching her like, you know, how she could expect to feel with some of these choices. Um, We also have a very picky eater too. So it is hard navigating. (laughs) Uh, some of that, you know, so, and Heather knows our, our kid is a little, she's spicy, which I love, um, <laughs> and is very opinionated about what she will and will not do at six. So. <laughs> I love that language of teaching a young person. And I think that's even valuable for adults of food shows up differently in your body. 
I think that's such a good language that it's not like this is bad for you. This is good for you. It just impacts your body differently. And Mm -hmm. it's good just to teach awareness of being attuned to yourself of how am I feeling in response to what I've eaten and how Mm -hmm. do I want to, you know, engage with that. I think that's just really helpful, healthy language. Yeah. So I had a question that's somewhat related. I've seen different posts on online and whatnot. And so I'm just curious about, is there a difference between comfort eating and self-medicating and where could there be room for comfort foods in a healthy relationship with food? Okay. Is there a difference between comfort eating and And self-medicating? Oh, that's such a good question. I think it depends on the intentionality because I don't think comfort eating is bad. Okay. At all. Um, when I think about self-meditating with food, I'm, it, it gets my ears kind of perking because I'm curious of what other areas are you experiencing pleasure and intimacy in your life besides food? And that is often what I'll ask my clients, right? Like, what do your relationships look like? Are you experiencing self-care? What are other ways you can have kind of those tactile stimulations um, and that time that's not only derived only with food? So I think it's the intention. I I just think, you know, what else is going on, you know, in your life um, that are that's leading to this? Uh, that's such a good question. I'm. I'm thinking about how even, even the question begins to reframe, like food becomes one piece of like the puzzle of what it looks like to care for your body. Um, Mm -hmm. and so doing other things, uh, to care for your body and your self, um, is like food becomes one piece of that. And I think that's a really beautiful aspect of that question. Yeah, absolutely. Because you think about like, it's cold and rainy in Memphis, right? So like, there's nothing wrong with like a comforting casserole or like a hot soup and sandwich, you know, or a loaded baked potato, right? There's nothing wrong in times of grief, somebody bringing over, um, you know, homemade desserts or, you know, a warm meal, like those things are so comforting for us. And so I think about why would we label that as bad again it goes back to the community aspect we show so much love and community through food and through gatherings yeah that's so interesting i i'm loving how you're talking about this because i think a lot of people would assume oh comfort eating is bad it's like you're sort of out of control or something like that Mm -hmm. um and i do think it's delicate and so i'd love for you to talk more about ways that we can express healthy love through food. Cause that is so core mm-hmm. to many cultures. And I think even in, you know, in the church that like we express care and love for one another through food, and that can be a really beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And how do we do that without communicating that like food is love? Yeah. So I, I think food is love. So I'm one of those people that operate okay. like the food is the food is love. Um, category. And, and this really changed when I started treating, um, binge eating disorder, because what we, we don't typically think of binge eating disorder as a restrictive eating disorder, right? And there's a lot of shame and guilt associated with binge eating disorder. But what we found out was that the majority of people that have binge eating disorder are actually restricting food and they're consuming a majority of their intake throughout the binge episode. But in our mind, what we do is we labelize people that, that are overweight, that live in larger bodies as binge eating disorder. We label them as bad. They're eating too much and we need to kind of scale back. And so even when I'm working with somebody that has binge eating disorder, I don't even work on the binging first. I work on what, why are we restricting in other parts of our day? You know, so that's kind of how I go about it. I think there's a lot of, um, and and I'm sure y'all probably heard this too, if in Christian culture, like the body is the temple, how do we treat the temple, you know, things like that. And I don't think that is wrong to view that. I think, again, it goes back to intentionality of if we're only hyper-focused on food, what we need to also be focused on the other areas in which we are damaging our body by shame, guilt, 
you know, um, manipulation, things like that, you know, that often kind of go as a pass. So I do, I do think there's so many loving characteristics, um, particularly again, like I, you know, a lot of my experiences were, I'm biracial, but a lot of my experiences were in the South, South Texas around my dad's family who is black. And, you know, you just got to think too, like my grandmother grew up picking cotton, right? And so for her to then have to come home and eat that, that was love, that, that was how, you know, they didn't have a lot of money. So the only way to really show that love was to make a meal and was to kind of figure out that, that time Sunday, they, you know, were off and they went to church and then, you know, Sunday dinner was huge. Right. But now what we see in African-American culture, particularly in the South is we have a Sunday meal, we overeat their shame and guilt. So we have, we then turn that into, I'm not going to eat breakfast. I'm just going to have coffee or water. I'm going to save up all my calories and, um, saying calories in quotations. Um, and then I'm going to eat that one large meal and then I'm not going to eat for the rest of the day. And so we've, we've taken these very beautiful, um, experiences and turned them into this like shame and guilt cycle. That's so, yeah, that's so helpful. Thank you, Whitney. I do just think, I just think this is such an exciting time in, from my perspective as an outsider, like as an observer in the field of um, nutrition and dietetics, but I think there's so much more, more conversations are being had that we haven't just had in public. Um, And I think more information is available widely through social media in ways that haven't happened before. I'm just, I'm excited. I'm excited, especially for young people that I do think a lot of old assumptions and just patterns and habits are being challenged where they need to be. And I just think it's creating a new way forward. And I, I just think it's an exciting time. I totally agree with you. I totally agree. Um, anything else, Jamie, on that section? Nope. Okay. So we kind of just have one final, just general closing question. If, is just there anything that we haven't touched on yet that might be important for the faith community to understand and think about in understanding eating disorders and supporting those who are dealing with them? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like we've talked about so much. Um, it's been such a a fast, good hour. I feel like, Uh, (laughs) you know, I think it's just important to understand everybody is in a different relationship and, and where they are with food and body. Um, and so not projecting some of our own insecurities onto people and, and really wading through the, the stigma. Um, and I think just being open and, and I would say too, we talked a lot about women and young girls, but we're seeing an increase, um, in, in boys as well that have eating disorders. Um, and you and I, Heather have talked about gender identity as well. Um, you know, we, we really are seeing youth have an increase of disordered eating and eating disorders and body image, unlike any other period of time. So, yeah. Yeah. And Jamie and I talked last in our last episode, which is worth reiterating that because so much church gathering happens around food and that can be really wonderful and joyful. And it can also be anxiety provoking for people and stressful for people that I do think as as community of faith, as churches, we can grow in our ability to let people draw boundaries and not question them (laughs) and just like make food available to people. But it doesn't have to be the focal point. People don't, we don't have to pressure people to eat, especially at a potluck. Your identity doesn't have to be wrapped up in whether people eat your dish or not. (laughs) I'm so glad you said that. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Let's normalize that, please. (laughs) I was talking to a friend about this dynamic. Um, and I thought it was so helpful. She used language around consent um, and food. And I think uh, it just gave me new language to think about that. Um, and I was, I had a hard time at first when she was saying it, because the way I was picturing it sounded so violating. And then I was like, that really is how we function. And we, we see it as maybe care of like, no, you have to eat this. Like you, have you ever experienced Heather's baked goods? Like if you haven't, you have to eat it. Like, um, and this kind of way of not really thinking about how 
actually like violating someone's like space and experience that is. Um, and I think when I started to put it literally in that example of like, oh, I actually can see myself getting like really excited, like, oh, you, you've never tried this before. And I think for us to just function in a different place of like empathy towards people who just have a higher level of anxiety coming into a community meal and what that would mean for them and and trying to put ourselves in other people's shoes of like being in that space and thinking about it from a different perspective and not wanting to kind of have this almost like violating enthusiasm towards uh something but also you know just those kind of things that people think are innocent around commentary around like what is or isn't on people's plates, I think can go along with that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Well, I want to close with just one more brief passage to continue to root us in what is God's heart for abundance and equity in particular, so that inequity is not part of what is driving um, people wrestling with food. So I want to read from Isaiah 55, um, and it's just a lovely passage to end with, verses 1 through 3. It says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, listen that you may live, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. Just makes me emotional. <laughs> I just love that God is removing barriers. Um, yeah. And removing things that would cause trauma and generational trauma. And that is God's heart for his people and for all people that we wouldn't be experiencing injustice and violence and trauma that would cause this generational pain and these generational struggles, but that God's desire for his people is, is wholeness and equity and access. And I do think that's an important challenge for the church. This, this passage from Isaiah is speaking of our future hope um, when God restores all things. But I also don't think we should just wait around until then. I think we can be moving now in the hope that God gives us, that we as the church can be moving in the heart of God, the character of God to know God loves equity. God loves abundance. God loves provision. And we can be seeking that in our communities. It's not something that we just leave up to God when Jesus returns, but we can be moving in that hope today. Absolutely. Well, Whitney, we are so thankful for your time. We are thankful for your work in, in my community here in Memphis, but so much of your work is um, around the country. So we're just so encouraged by you. We are, are eager uh, for you to continue pouring into the field and being a world changer. So um, we will link your website in the show notes. Again, go follow her on Instagram at WhitneyTrotter.rd. And I've been making notes of all the books and content that you referenced as well. So we'll make sure that's in the show, show notes also, if folks have oh. questions or want to read further. Awesome. I appreciate that so much. Well, we are again, thankful for this time. Thank you for all of you for listening. You can find us online. We are on Facebook and Instagram, and we would love to connect with you and continue this conversation. Thanks for digging in with us today.